Assalamu alaikum. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. And welcome to the Drive Time Show. Today it's Thursday and it's the 15th of February 2024 on The Voice of Islam. And you are listening to me, Hanif Khan, on The Voice of Islam radio. And I will be having many guests on the show today to talk about two brilliant subjects that have been produced by our wonderful research team. And the first show that we will be talking about is about cancel culture. Many people kind of understand it, that, oh, you're not allowed on stage, you don't have a platform, you cannot come on this platform or social media uh, or anything like that you've been cancelled but actually we're going to delve into the fact that it's a lot more detail than that and in the second hour we'll be talking very poetically I believe in nature a perfectly proportioned world and we'll be talking again to many guests on on that second hour, looking forward to speaking to Ian Campbell, who's the media manager for the British Beekeepers Association. And then we'll be talking to Paul Hetherington, and he is the director of fundraising and communications at Bug Life. And then in the end, at the end of the uh, show we'll be talking to Tristan Evans. He's the intro to him is that he's the assistant helpline manager at the Bat Conservation Trust. So all that to look forward to in the second hour. And if you've got any questions about that, the poeticness of of the nature, and we'll be talking how perfectly proportion the world is and how it has to have someone in the background who's making that all happen looking forward to that second hour well anyway in the first hour we will be talking as i mentioned uh, about cancel culture and we will be talking to a number of guests on that looking forward to chatting to thomas muller and uh, he's a professor at apple chain state university in boone north carolina and looking at his research where he focuses on behavioral aspects of the consumer response and we'll also be talking to marissa traversa looking forward to chatting to her as well as she is a social psychologist phd student at the simon fraser university in canada and looking to understand and studying the council culture from the perspective of groups experiencing intergroup harm it kind of highlights a little bit about what we'll be talking about so Please do get involved with this conversation. Get in touch with us either by the mobile phone. Just give us a call on 0208-687-7878. Or if you feel like you just want to tweet us, tweet us on all of our socials at Voice of Islam UK. And then we can get a conversation going. And in relation to the cancel culture on our Instagram we're asking a question about, you know, you might change your opinion later, but by all means, get involved with us that way. We're asking a question on Instagram that says, cancel culture is, and then you've got four options. That is censorship of free speech. Do you think that's what it is? Do you think it's holding people accountable for what, you know, what they've been saying? Is it a woke agenda? I mean, how many times have you heard the woke agenda? It's woke, you're woke. I'm not woke. So anyway, let's just get on to that. And then 
you know, if there's something else you feel it is, you might even consider it's all of them. You never know. I'll, I'll be interested to see what you have to say. Then you can just uh, direct message us um, on the platform as well. So remember, 0208-687-7878. Get in touch with us and we can have a conversation together. And don't feel shy. It's me in the studio. I'm on my own today. And you're speaking with Hanif Khan. And we're going to just take a quick 30-second short break. And I'll be right back with you after that. The sublime one. The one who is both majestic and exalted, and has a lofty status. And there will remain only the person of thy Lord, Master of glory and honor. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back for that very quick short break. Yeah, let's get straight into this subject of cancel culture. I mean, when I was looking through the notes that have been provided for this show, I was enlightened by quite a lot, thinking that actually much deeper and much further in terms of making people feel that they're not included, become inclusive out of society, and they worry about how they can interact and they feel ostracized and not so much partisan but they feel that they've been pushed out so we're going to delve into that because according to the daily express there's a news article that was published in 2022 and it said that a total of 57 percent of the people that they spoke to at least sometimes they stop themselves from expressing their political or social views and that is for fear of judgment or negative responses from others. Now, I don't know, I felt that that statistic is quite high. That means if you're in a crowded room and you're having a conversation with about seven seven people over lunch, having a chat, you know nearly more than half of the people who are listening to the conversation are actually not really telling the truth or how they really feel, and they're just going with the flow. And I think that, for me, is really worrying. I think we need to have a healthy conversation. We need to understand one another. And we need to, you know, have build strong relationships. You don't have to agree with everybody all the time. Also, it said that the article, it, it stated that the council culture has found that over half of Britons hide their views in fear of being criticised or cancelled, particularly when it comes to those that are not seen as progressive. And what does progressive mean? Does that mean you're in with the best fashion, you've got the best mobile phone, or is it upon your ideas, you know, how society has changed? I mean, look, we live in a society, especially in the United Kingdom and more specifically in London, that's where our studios are, is that everyone has so many views on one subject and they speak over 100, 200 languages in, in different parts of, of the borough in, in London. So you can understand that culturally, there are so many ways that people live their life. They live their life through their religion. They live their life through their culture. Does that mean they're not progressive? 
What does that actually mean? Let's just delve into that. And if you've got a view on that, what do you understand that people not being seen as progressive? Does that mean you lose your values? Does that mean our sovereignty of our country is gone because we've changed as a society? I think a lot of people would look back and, and see what they understand as progressive may not necessarily mean changing too much and losing your values. I think although you can keep your values, uh, say, for example, tolerance, but actually does it mean you're progressive and you're not tolerant? What does that mean? Let's just get into that. And also, look, please just educate me at the same time as well. And look, cancel culture refers to a contemporary social phenomena characterised by the public shaming, boycotting or calling out individuals or organisations for their perceived offence, actions or statements. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is Extinction Rebellion. I mean, they are going hard with all of these oil-producing companies <clears throat> that are out there and they're not going to greener issues. They, they are creating you know, a lot of disruption in society. Does that mean they're progressive, not progressive? Does that mean <clears throat> if you say something publicly, we see a lot of that, don't we, on social media and your own platforms on Instagram, on Twitter, and even on Facebook, you're having a discussion and suddenly someone uh, posts a particular point of view. Does that mean you go for them and you say, look, you can't say that. Why do you say that? Do you not know my situation, X, Y, Z? And then they feel that they can't express themselves and sometimes they get shamed. And obviously, publicly on social media is the same as being told off and shamed out in the street because it's a public domain. And I think the two have come together. And then boycotting. And boycotting could be in many ways, which we'll delve into. But something that really struck me is that if you said something, either innocently or you had a strong view about something, and suddenly in your circle of friends or your university or your workplace, suddenly people stop talking to you because they kind of listened to what you said and they didn't like it. And then now you can't talk to them and they avoid you. And then that could affect your work. That could affect your promotion. That's kind of boycotting. And that is also cancel culture. And also calling out individuals and organisations for their perceived offences and especially their actions and statements. You know, we know currently, we'll delve into this with our guests, what's happening over around the world in so many conflicts. You look at what's happening in America, you've got two very experienced, um, hopeful prime ministers, and one's been prime minister, not been prime minister, and they've got very conflicting views and very divided, and it's di and very divisive as well. And then when you look at over here in the United Kingdom, it's the same thing as well. So the way people express themselves politically I think that's a key thing you're on the you're talking about your friends that's what they say don't talk about politics at the dinner table you know but you can't help it everything is there so we've got to be a little bit more tolerant as well and also it often involves attempts to cancel as well so you might be a person or an organization or an entity that can result in various consequences, such as I mentioned earlier, uh, job losses, damaged reputation, or social exclusion. And that can, as a, on a personal level, 
affects you mentally, right? So all of that is really important, and we will get into that a little bit more. But I do want to talk to our first guest, who is waiting in the wings, and I'm really looking forward to speaking to Thomas Muller. And he's the professor at... Apple Chan State University in Boom, North Carolina, and his research focuses on the behavioural aspects of consumer response through data analysis and the predictive analysis. Can you predict someone who is actually going to be cancelled? Professor, welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate the chance to talk, and, and there's nothing more rewarding for an academic is when someone recognizes one of their published papers. So thank you. Oh, you're, you're, you're most welcome. And actually, that's what I wanted to kind of let's get into some really into a lot of detail because your research it, it identified like key significant predicators of involvement in cancel culture, and I wanted to kind of understand more about the dynamics of this public accountability and can you just kind of explain what that actually means and just for our listeners in in lame terms just explain what your uh, paper was about yes thank you and let me start with this i'm a professor in department of communication yeah. it's at appalachian state university we're in the mountains of north carolina in wisconsin uh the united states yeah. And I always build this through the courses I teach, my research courses. So students are part of this, and it helps them understand also, you know, their own perspectives. And we did start with students doing 27 separate personal interviews. And I help with the semi-structured script, you know, so they're standardized. But out of that, all those 27 interviews, we came up with our 10 contemporary statements, you know, what we measured in our study. And that is what I would speak on today, what mm. those measures predicted. Yeah. And we did collect 986 respondents, which is pretty good. And so we have a pretty good sample set to work yeah. from. Yeah, that sounds great. So how, how then do political orientation, especially over in America, which we're all glued to at the moment, um, <laughs> honestly, we just don't understand how is it that America can can actually be uh, pushing towards two very elderly and respected gentlemen in their own fields. Um, but, you know, how, how does the gender traits correlate uh, with the demand for, like, an apology uh in the context of cancel culture, because there are, I assume that election is going to get a bit personal, right? It is. It's funny you say that. Our new study with my students is perception of 2024 presidential election. We just got that data in, so that will be a whole nother interesting. But yes, highly polarized and yeah. risky, risky to speak from one to the other about your opinion. Um, you know, one of our measured statements there is, politics used to be something around the coffee table now it destroys families so that is you know where our context but in the in the cancel culture study there's a couple things i'll tell you about quickly in predictors one one of our measures was overall involvement with cancel culture and there was a 10 item response for that but basically that tells us cognitively and effectively you know fact-based and emotions how people are involved with cancel culture and in our study the number one predictor of that was if someone is attacked for saying something inappropriate they should apologize immediately yeah okay so in that the measure that was a positive predictor so as people become more and more involved in the cancel culture concept you know they want it the more they're going to demand 
uh, an apology, hmm. right? But here's the interesting thing. We tested that same thing with politics and gender. That's what you had asked about. Yeah. So in both of those, the same predictor should apologize immediately is the number one predictor, but it's a negative relationship. So I'll explain that in layman's terms. Yes, As the political measure was liberal to conservative. So in a negative relationship, the variables push against each other. So as people are demanding more and more apology, that is going to push down toward the liberal side of politics. As people are more and more conservative in politics, they are less likely to demand an apology. So it's sort of in the liberal to conservative spectrum where people demand an apology or not. We, we, we recently had an incident with our Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, where he was asked to apologise over a transgender comment. Now, in that scenario, you've got two things being played there, haven't we? Like in terms of one party is saying you have to apologise because it warrants it. And the other one is saying, actually, no, I thought I made myself quite clear. I don't need to apologise within the context. So in that instant, if the prime minister apologised, that will be seen then as a negative perspective. And that's why the opposing party is asking him to do it. Yes, and I think over time, even if you've looked at crisis management papers, yeah. in the beginning, apology was always the immediate response. Right. But yeah. now more and more yeah. consultants will say, hey, don't apologize, don't. And, you know, one of our candidates, especially for the presidential election, never apologizes and is, is getting some good response in the polls. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. And one other quick thing, as we ran the same test for, uh, we, we called it gender identity trait. As people, it was the somewhat similar from feminine to masculine, those skewing more masculine on that measure would ask for less apology. Those skewing more feminine would ask for more apology. So in, in our kind of culture for Islam, for someone who kind of is more tolerant and says, well, very sorry, um, you would consider that to be a high moral ground. We know now in politics the 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 problem with politics is that there's no trust or integrity anymore. Is there a way that could be reversed ever? Well, I think so. And going right back to my data, and you know, we always say we we know in data there's some correlation, not causation, right? Wow. But we do see, and I'll bring in a bit of that for you yeah. if you'd like. You know, it, it, the the two most highly correlated statements were: I want to know more about the person's character and debate diverse perspectives. That was the most highly correlated pair. Mm -hmm. So individuals would say, look, I wanna debate the other side of the story, and I'd like to learn more about your character. I think that's beyond cancel culture, right? You're not just trying to destroy someone over their immediate statement. Mm -hmm. You're saying, I need to know more about what's the foundation of that person. So there is this relationship of those two, and then also know more about character and learn from mistakes was the second most highly correlated pair. So there's, I see compassion in this. You know, I yeah. want to learn more about the character. And you know what? People can learn from mistakes. That means a second chance. So there's this dimension in there where not everybody's just shouting down on social media trying to destroy the other. Interesting, because I had a question here that talks about what is the association between the desire to understand 
a person's character and a willingness to engage in a debate before making the judgment. I think that you're kind of beginning to answer that. But it, explain more about how that kind of relates to the council culture, because there you want to try and understand more, but actually by understanding more, then you know, right, I can cancel that person because I know what it's like. Right. And there's there's one more thing. There's something yeah. we do also with, you know, like cor- there's 10 of these statements, right? Yeah. And in correlated first, we put it into what is called a neural network, which is really a visualization of how all these 10 statements work together. Yeah. And what's interesting on there is if you look at, I, and again, I always think about who's the prototypical person? Can I envision this type of person? So a person that cares about character, wants to debate, and also might believe in forgiveness, that prototypical person pushes away from the statement, dig into a person's past. Right. So the more people want to care about character and have some forgiveness, they're not going to try to dig up something from the past to hurt somebody. Right. It's yeah. a negative. But people who want to dig it up more to look in to find that thing from 10 years ago, they're not going to be into so much of the character and chance for forgiveness. Right. OK. So just before I let you go, I've got this question I want to ask you about. This portrayal, this spread of cancel culture in the media and its narratives, how it affects society, because I've always thought that cancel culture actually was about, in the media world, it just cancelled people having a platform on the stage or on a, on a, you know, on YouTube or, but actually there's a, a lot more to it. You know, what are the broader implications of these effects? Well, you were mentioning it right before I came on. Mm. One is I'd call it micro-cancel culture. You said it in in an academic university context. I might state a point of view in one or two sentences, and I might be ostracized from certain Mm. people, right? You're not in the bigger trend of how people are trying to relate. And, you know, there's a lot of theory about how people start viewing themselves as the minority and go silent. Mm. And and, I'm sorry, view themselves, yes, as the minority, and they go silent. So... There's so much effect of how we just we talk and meet among ourselves yeah. that I think is – and also one last thing here, keep your beliefs private was the lowest-ranked statement of all in our study. But our study was 2021, right? right? Look at what's happened to now, right? The, the idea you better keep your ideas private, mm. I think that's been magnified tenfold in the yeah. last two years. Yeah, and also, I mean, with this conflict that's going on in Israel and Palestine, the those beliefs keep your, you know, your personal values belief. But then there's this religious value, isn't it? That everybody is there they're outwardly saying, this is my value, this is what the religion I follow, and one another trying to cancel each other. It's, I mean, can you reflect on that? That is creating a lot of issues here in the United Kingdom. You know, you're getting more people from the Jewish community feeling very threatened. And then also, on the flip side, you're getting people from um, the Islamic um, perspective also feeling uh, threatened as well. So... Do you think there is a good opportunity for people just to cancel one another, or is it okay? Is it healthy? Well, you you made a great point. You know, what is canceling? And you said it. It used to be maybe on social media. Remember in the beginning, even back in my state, well, maybe someone gets blocked, someone gets their account deleted. That might have been cancel culture. Well, now you're talking about the potential for violence, right? Even on the local level, when there's certain protests about 
the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. So it it goes down into each community now, mm-hmm. and it's it's real and it's visceral. It's not so much just playing out on social mm-hmm. media, which is it's the hard it's the hardships for us all as we try to have character and care about the other. Compassion's the only, the only solution, in well, my opinion, coming off this study. Well, there you go. I was, was going to ask you to, uh, that lasting thought, but you've given it to me now. I appreciate that, Professor. That's very kind of you. Thanks for your time today, and best of luck with your study and your next study, which we've kind of realised on the show as well. Yes, presidential election. We'll have a lot to talk about when that data gets uh, calculated. Excellent. And we'll have you on the show then as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. I very much enjoyed our conversation. Uh, Same with me as well. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye now. That was... um Professor Thomas Muller, I mean, fascinating, you know, uh, sorry, Professor uh, Thomas Muller, uh, very fascinating stuff about that. Uh, maybe we could get a list of all of the kind of comments that came through with just never enough time to be able to do that. Well, anyway, if anything that interests you, by all means, just give us a call on 0208. 7878 and obviously give us a shout out on the tweet as well and you know just get involved in the conversation you know we are getting some responses actually from our poll that we were asking earlier looks like you guys are getting quite interested engaging with it the question we asked was council culture is a censorship of free speech holding people accountable a woke agenda or other so i can give you the I'll give you the results more later. But anyway, the one that's leading this particular poll is holding people accountable. And, you know, it's quite an interesting thought there, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you. And I I think also you might want to consider some of the others as well. So let's move on with with that and carry on our discussion before we speak with uh, Marissa later uh, on the show. And, you know, uh, Marissa Traversa, which I mentioned earlier, she's a social scientist psychology PhD student at Simon Fraser University and you know we'll talk about her study in terms of counseling culture as well so we'll be speaking to her uh, later in, in the show but I just wanted to get through some of this kind of understanding as what we understand as this culture um subject we're talking about so look uh, let me just give you some more stuff on on here and um, so look cancel culture is often fueled and spread through social media platforms where individuals can easily express their opinion and mobilize others to join their cause and that's why you've got more and more people engaged I mean, you've got such situations where if you wanted to organise a rally, it's so much easier now. You can just put it on your social media platform and create an event. A lot of people know that you're coming and explain to people why you're doing it. And we know many times in social media, it's an echo chamber. So you're going to get the same people who believe in your values to turn up. Uh, So social media is one of those things that have, have really... Uh, exploded on this scene and so many ways of cancelling one another and so many ways of even blocking one another as well. It's also cancel culture. It's targeted a wide range of individuals as well, from celebrities, politicians, to everyday people. And uh, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, some of the people say it's down to racist remarks, sexual misconduct and controversial beliefs. We've all got those. We've all have those prejudices, but we need to find a way where we can talk to people honestly and be tolerant with one another and actually debate. Often by debating, you can solve many of these problems. And they also 
the debate evolves around whether the consequences were imposed by a council culture or a proportion of those offences committed. And we know what they are, the way you say things and what you are and the way you behave. And then as a result of some of that council culture, we know that incidents happen where police need to be called in as well. Now, I, I just wanted to say, mention a verse in the Holy Quran, which is chapter 4, verse 59, and it says in the Holy Quran, it says, Verily, Allah commands you to make over the trust to those entitled to them, and that when you judge between men, you judge with justice. And surely, excellence is that which Allah admonishes you. Allah is all-hearing and all-knowing. And in the Quran also encourages making a judgment with justice, suggesting that like any form of accountability or the consequences should be based on fairness and equity and highlighting the importance of admonishment and, uh, and as a means of guiding individuals towards ethical behaviour. And I think that's a lovely verse in the Holy Quran and if we could adopt those and talk about and then some of the people have actually mentioned in the in the poll we're saying about you know holding people accountable and you know this is the accountability of the consequences of, of what's going on but I wanted to t- touch on the social media side of things very quickly before we do speak to our next guest and and this is about the cancel culture on social medias that are closely intertwined and as a social media platform is a played such a significant role in the rise on spread of this cancel culture and it's providing a powerful and an accessible way for individuals to amplify their voices like i said earlier mobilize a group for people to turn up and, and do a rally or or actually have an opportunity to express their views um you know it's an interesting one we used to have a speaker's corner where people would just turn up because they'll they'll know about it there's always been a tradition at speaker's corner where people go and express their views in so many uh, um, on so many topics but now they can be mobilized on social media and then there's also these things about uh, the use of hashtags to organize and to spread um, spread their uh, messages to be able to get people together and then also at the same time to cancel people as well you know for example and we're seeing this today as well the brands like makeup brands and food companies they've all been boycotted for their support on Israel and is that right is that wrong how does it affect people uh, is it you know we, we could delve into that a little bit more as well I mean so many people have boycotted companies by spreading their views on social media and using the hashtags like Gaza, Palestine, makeup and corporate. It, it, it's all there and it's even led to stores like Starbucks and H&M to close permanently. And especially it's happened in Morocco. And then and, and now what does that mean? People have now lost their job, lost their employment, lost their ability to put food on the table for their families. There are consequences to everything we do. We should be you know, held accountable in, in that. And um, so this that information about Morocco came from Arab News. And then obviously they and being Morocco and being closer into that region of the world, they're probably able to give us a bit more detail about that. But look, importantly, there are negative effects of social media and the spread of misinformation. I mean, that's something that we've spoken a lot about this misinformation especially when it comes to stories that go viral and then many people then start to present their own version of of the story as fact which it might not necessarily be because because according to the BBC news 
Starbucks has published a letter calling for peace and blaming the misrepresentation of its views for vandalism of its stores. Everyone knows Starbucks. Everybody loves a Starbucks. Everyone's been to Starbucks. They've all had their tea, coffee, their shakes, their their cold coffees, you name it, it's, it's all there. They're frappuccinos. Uh, obviously, you know that uh, I go to Starbucks and I go to many coffee shops as well. But it may be that they've real- released this statement to ease the tension, suggesting that the cancelling, remember, it's not just about stopping people on a, going on stage, it's now cancelling, affecting their businesses. And it's a causing them to stop the injustices that are happening in Israel and has commented against Gaza. So there's, there's loads of things that are going on that we really need to talk about. And obviously there are examples on TikTok where videos have gone viral and this one, I didn't even know this one even existed, that it was a TikTok video in which a man supporting Palestine went inside a McDonald's and opened a box full of rats Ugh. and then letting them out and scaring the customers and compromising the hygiene. I mean, to, to what extent are people prepared to go to? And in such, these type of acts mean that they go viral and then they increase their their um, their followers rather than spreading awareness. We, we need to work on spreading the truth, spreading what's going on, and then people can actually understand rather than people wanting to get, you know, clickbait etc and, and go viral and I, this is where I think this is the danger of social media and this cancel culture because also I wanted to say that uh, the Holy Grand um, in chapter 2 verse 43 it says that any confound not truth with falsehood nor hide the truth knowingly and I think this verse is emphasizing that the importance of truth honesty and not hiding the truth intentionally and this aligns with ethical considerations that should present in the discussions related to cancel culture and promoting accountability based on you know the accurate information that you have so i think let's uh, let's move on and let's just talk to our next guest who's been waiting for us to speak to and i'm looking forward to talking to marissa and uh, so on the line i have marissa Travesa. she is a social psychology phd student at simon fraser university in canada and studying the cancel culture from a perspective of groups experiencing intergroup harm. So, welcome to the Drive Time Show, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's awesome. So, how is your PhD going? Because I know it's a, a massive sacrifice of one's life. <laughs> it's going well. It's a lot of hard work, but yeah. it's very uh, fun and, and rewarding, I think. Oh, good. Glad to hear that as well. Look, could you must explain what collective validation is and, and what does it mean and how does it relate to cancel culture in the social psychological terms? Yeah, so I think the easiest way to think about it is um, to consider personal validation that's often yeah. used in therapy and counseling. Um, and this provides a sense of value and self-worth to a patient, this kind of recognition that their experiences are valid and real. Mm. Um, basically what it says to them is, you know, I believe you and you matter. And this is often coming from 
you know, not, not perpetrators of harm or an abuser, but from a third party. So a therapist, a counselor, even sometimes a friend or a family member. Um, and so collective validation is kind of this newer concept that I adapted from these concepts of personal validation in clinical trauma research. And so if we basically move validation into this group-based context, collective validation exists uh, when members of a group that has experienced harm feels this sense of, you know, value and worth and recognition that their existence and their importance and experiences, that this is all valid. And this is often provided by a third party as well, this kind of general society or this larger group, this, this larger community. Yeah. And, and that can quite easily play out in the workforce. You know, we in this country, in the United Kingdom, we have unions um, which you know fight for workers' rights and and make sure they're self they're safe and the, the company that they work for uh, complies with the health and safety culture. And and then there's a job um, specialization where people can't do one another's job. But I know it's more so in in the states uh, as well. Does that also, because when you work for an organization and say the company you're working for is making you work extra hours of making you work day and night to produce the number of items they want to produce in, in manufacturing. Now, is that also, if you had the same amount of workers feeling the same way, could they come together and then could they then go against their company? Um, is that also a similar example of this collective validation? Um, I think that would fit more with collective action. So right. collective action is more when groups um, who share a similar kind of identity uh, will come together and work together to fight against potential harm yeah. or even very real harm. Um, and so I think in the case of unions, so for things like striking or even just forming a union, that yeah. can be a really powerful uh, form of collective action. So, so, so give me another example then, because then obviously um, the action is one side, but this collective validation from the psychological terms, can you give me a, a practical example? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, with, with unions, if there's a union that's on strike and there are other unions who aren't on strike, but they sort of stop work or don't cross a picket line in solidarity, that could be really validating for the union that is on strike because what those other unions are saying to them is we respect what you're doing yeah. we see you we hear you and we believe that your fight and your cause is valid and has value yeah. um, and so there could be this this feeling of right. collective right. validation yeah. on the part of the union that's striking right yeah. they see yeah. us they hear us they care and they're willing to help us yeah that makes a lot of sense because for the first mm. time in the United Kingdom, we had the nurses go on strike. Never before has that ever happened. And and they were they were searching. One in their own souls is the right thing they can do because they're in the, in the community of serving and saving people's lives, etc., like, like the junior doctors. But having the nurses for the first time ever to go on strike in this country from when the NHS was formed... They needed that kind of validation, didn't they? And and we as mm -hmm. as a kind of society kind of said, yeah, we understand why you're doing it. And it kind of made it easier for them to do. Although 
um, there is a, a grey area, especially in, in some cultures where they say, no, if you work in an environment like you're saving lives, you shouldn't really uh, go on strike. So many people did and didn't. They, they had to just deal with that from themselves. So it's, it's interesting to understand because we did, you know, we as a society validated their strike and same with the junior mm-hmm. doctors as well. Um, so... I've got another question here for you that says, you know, how, how do episodes of this cancel culture affect marginalised groups differently? And what do these groups find validation through cancel culture? Because obviously we spoke about unions, didn't we? And now we've spoken about... Uh, is there, are there any other groups then? Yeah, this is a bit of a difficult question to hmm. answer since the... The, the simple answer is we really don't know yet. Cancel culture hasn't really been studied in social psychology, at least not mm. enough. Um, I'm surprisingly one of the first researchers to kind of touch the topic, and so it's not really possible for us to know definitively how groups are impacted differently by it. Um, what I know from my research is that after you know our participants were reading about a scenario where a broader society kind of cancels this perpetrator of harm that was directed at the participants' respective groups. Um, we had both undergraduate women and East Asian North Americans feel this sense of collective validation, and then this indirectly increased their intentions to engage in future activism. But this process happened a little bit differently, and so for women, collective validation led to greater feelings of empowerment, Whereas for East Asian North Americans, it led to greater feelings of anger and contempt toward the perpetrator. And both empowerment and anger and contempt are known uh, sort of predictors or precursors of increased collective action in the, the literature. But what's unique is that this is coming from a feeling of collective validation. Um, and so this process, why it differs between these two groups, we're not really sure. And it's something that definitely needs to be investigated. Interesting. Yeah, that all sounds really good. So could you then also talk about this term called call-in culture? I mean, how do the goals mm-hmm. of a call-in culture differ from those of, like, cancel culture? And why is there, why is this distinction very important? Yeah, call-in culture is something that is really interesting. Um, it's this practice, and it's discussed mainly by um, Loretta Ross. And it, it's basically this practice that involves allies and harmed group members or these marginalized group members uh, working together through these kinds of open, non-judgmental conversations or work um, about harm without what cancel culture would include, without these these feelings of anger or humiliation or shame. Um, And so this approach is actually kind of supported in some of the uh, social psychological research. There's some work by Yulia Becker and, and her colleagues that shows that, you know, when members of different groups talk about political topics in really meaningful ways, this increases allyship behaviors among traditionally advantaged groups. And so while I agree with Ross that, you know, calling in or this calling culture is really helpful mm-hmm. and useful, I think its overall goals differ a bit from canceling. Um, so according to Loretta Ross, calling in is really meant to end or kind of mitigate oppression through long-term meaningful work with allies. So these people who are willing to learn, willing to grow, willing to change. While canceling is kind of used more 
uh, to hold accountable immediately powerful perpetrators who are refusing to hold themselves accountable. Mm. So while calling someone in can be really helpful with, you know, this, this willing and open ally, what happens when it, you know, fails because the person is refusing to acknowledge that harm or they disagree that their actions were even harmful? Who, who's holding them responsible? Yeah. And how do we call in people with, you know, immense political or social power mm. who are refusing to acknowledge this harm? So celebrities, politicians, billionaires, you know, these people with incredible social power. Um, and so while I think calling culture is really effective and helpful in reducing oppression in this more long-term yeah. way, I don't know that it's the whole story. Right, okay, yeah, because one of the things with cancel culture on social media they say it can have a severe psychological effects on on the targets, meaning those people who are being um, attacked. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it kind of all kind of includes things like anxiety, depression, and and there are some people say that it can even be where people end up having suicidal thoughts. And so, do we think, therefore, a call-in culture could be better than a collective validation? Calling culture, I think, would also provide, to a certain extent, a feeling of collective validation. Oh, right. Okay. I think collective validation is is really provided anytime um, somebody from outside of the group that's experienced harm is saying to that group or communicating to that group, um, "You're right. Like that was harmful, and we see that and we recognize that, and you deserve justice." whatever that looks like. And so I think even collective apologies can be very validating. Um, I do think that call-in... So so I'm definitely of the opinion that, you know, cancelling should be reserved for when calling in doesn't work. Right. Um, I I don't think that it's something that we should necessarily jump to as our first choice in dealing with these kinds of group-based harm situation. And and this is actually consistent with some of the literature in social psychology on group-based transgressions. Um, you know, there's these, these Simon and Klanderman's talk about these three steps that lead harm groups to collective action or acting out against harm. And so um, it's really that, you know, they become aware of the harm and agree that they don't want it. Yeah. They attribute that harm to a specific person or group or whatever. Um, and then that, that person, that perpetrator, is kind of given the opportunity to take responsibility and apologize. And then if they don't, that's when the third step comes in, which is sort of calling on this larger yeah. society or larger group for support. And I think that's where cancel okay. culture can, can come in and be effective. I mean, it's, this is fascinating stuff because when I, after listening to you, when we're talking about the situation in wars around the world, you know, what's happening in Yemen, in Darfur, and also happening in in Gaza as well. We have the international mm-hmm. community trying to come to terms with a way of to come to a to a solution to to and, and you know get a ceasefire. But it's all about people are cancelling one another. And they're groups of people mm. who are cancelling one another. And within those groups, they're agreeing and not agreeing. I mean, I, th- I think you need to just go and sort them out, actually. <laughs> give us some advice, really, because it is, it is horrific with what's going on. And people are just having their their own agendas. And I think, does that make it right then to call it out 
and to cancel them in various ways because that's what's going on at the moment on social media isn't it everyone is cancelling one another mm. anyway yeah and i think i think cancel culture is is you know there are pros and cons to it and i think um the cons of cancel culture become really more pronounced with this heavy reliance or overuse of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it can be really impactful, as I said, in these situations where perpetrators are highly powerful, yeah. difficult to call in, simply don't care, and so on. But I do think that calling in is really the way to go, at least as a first step. Mm. Um, but because social media is so affectively charged, there's a lot of emotions people tend to run with those emotions rather than taking the time to yeah. sit with them and think about it. Yeah. Um, and so my, my advice to folks on social media who would just jump straight to canceling would be to sit with your emotions maybe for a second um, and then try to call yeah. in uh, folks rather than cancel right away. Got it. That, that, thanks for that, uh, Marissa. Well, we wish you the best of luck in your PhD, and thank you very much for your time today, and hopefully we'll catch up with you again in the future. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're most welcome. Thank you. So that was uh, Marissa Travessa. Fantastic call, you know, the psycho a social psychology PhD student at Simon Fraser University in Canada and, and studying the council culture from a perspective of groups experiencing intergroup harm. And, you know, we need to get her on the world stage, I think, um, and see if they can do anything to help with this continuous cancelling of one another and see how we can move forward on that look there is this whole thing about freedom of speech and accountability and and it's one that most people want to talk about and understand and it's um it's something that often motivates and is motivated by desire for accountability and there are advocates that argue that it holds individuals and organisations responsible for their actions, particularly in the case of harmful behaviour and offensive statements. Very similar to what we're talking about with our two guests that we've had on the show so far. And this accountability can be either seen as a positive force in society, encouraging people to consider the consequences of their actions and promoting ethical behaviour. And then there is this challenge that lies in finding a balance between accountability and the freedom of speech. While accountability is important for addressing harmful behaviour, but it can become problematic when it suppresses diverse perspectives or discourages open discourse. And that's what we were talking about. People need to... Before they cancel, just have a conversation with themselves. And that's what uh, Marissa was saying as, as she was as she was uh, ending our conversation. And look, and public discourse and societal norms they play a massive role in determining what is considered acceptable and speech behaviour. I, I wanted to just to um, we're coming to the end of the um, show, but I wanted to. I read this out. Um, a girl asked Hazrat Mizza Masur Ahmed, who is the head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, my Labi's helper, for advice on how Ahmadi Muslim girls can stay firm upon their religious beliefs in time when when there is this council culture and it may even hinder people from expressing their faith. And 
and his holiness he replied he said look people nowadays have moved away from religion and they make fun of faith in fact even when they make fun of the prophets that's why there was a time a few years ago when they made caricatures and cartoons of the holy prophet muhammad may peace and blessings of allah be upon him and then they mocked him and made foul statements about him even now there are those who are disrespecting the holy grant and when, when we look in sweden and denmark there's a man who is insulting the holy quran and islam and in france we're seeing these restrictions against islam he then went on to say that so we as ahmadi muslims in such circumstances are the ones who are to enlighten mankind about the true teachings of islam and as we have the right knowledge of islam and we have also have the secular knowledge then people will listen to us even more and when you speak to others people will acknowledge that and this person is well educated and and is not ignorant this person speaks scientifically and has a scientific and philosophical approach to things and presents arguments based upon that and presents evidence they will not then mock or fail you or take you seriously some people who are stubborn will mock but others will generally will not even if they avoid you they if they mock you then others will rise from amongst them who will say making fun of people is wrong and so gradually such people will come and who will listen to you so it it's a slow process and i think that's that's fantastic um advice there and um i i i then wanted to just kind of summarize our kind of conversations that we're having with this with this council culture but just before i do that i wanted to just say there's a whole thing about the education side of things as well look council culture can raise concerns about the academic freedom in higher education i think we spoke about this earlier didn't we at the, at the beginning of the show and that some argue that faculty members may self-censor their research or teaching about the fear of backlash or cancellation if their work addresses sensitive or controversial topics i mean i watched um a a movie uh, some time ago about uh, american football when the research became very clear that when people were wearing their helmets and they were going into the scrum and hitting one another that did have an effect on their health but because it was so powerful lobbying that research was although it may have been true but was ridiculed but it took many many years for that research to actually be accepted so it does happen both in education and as professors as well so i think it's important so look uh, in terms of like a a conclusion because there are some aspects of council culture that can be useful in holding people and organizations accountable for their bad behavior but then when you look at the flip side it can also take on a bullying to a new level and then damaging the mental well-being of everyone involved and and it's kind of additionally um can cause people with different opinions to the majority not only to not voice their opinion but if they do it could cause them um, uh, lots and lots of difficulties so i'll just end with a 
a quote with His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmed, who is the current head of our worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, may Allah be his helper. He said that Islam's teaching unite mankind and foster a spirit of mutual love and respect between all people, irrespective of racial, religious or social backgrounds. It is a religion that breaks down barriers and encourages peaceful and tolerant dialogue. He states that the sum total of its Allah the Almighty's teachings and the Muhammadan laws include within it love, tolerance, endurance and freedom of conscience and speech and the right to express one's opinion. So that's a a, you know, a, a really nice summary to this very complex show, although it, it is a very simple thing when you talk about cancel culture. But actually, now that you've delved into it and you've been enlightened, like myself speaking to our guests, you understand it a little bit more. And anyway, stay with us for the next hour. We will be talking um, about nature you know, a perfectly proportioned world. I look forward to staying with you and chatting about all of that stuff. But just before then, here is news. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Welcome back and thank you very much for staying with us for the second hour. And yeah, I thought the first hour that we spoke about was was brilliant, really un- understanding and really enlightening. And just you know, thanks to Professor Thomas Muller and uh, thanks to Marissa uh, Traverse uh, as well. And it uh, was very interesting, very fascinating. So look, I wanted to just give you some results that have come through now on our poll that we were asking about the first hour was, you know, cancel culture is, and we had asked them four kind of options that you had. One was the censorship of free speech, holding people accountable, and a woke agenda and then you could have dm'd us with your own kind of thoughts on it as well so just to let you know that we was 13 percent of the voters were censorship of free speech and 47 percent was holding people accountable and 20 percent was woke and then there was about another 20 percent that was other so it's interesting so i think you know after listening to that first hour i think you can probably understand where most people are, are coming from and understand what the meanings are of cancel culture but anyway we're now going slightly more poetic and i think if we had our program 
um, on poetry that we do on The Voice of Islam, which if you're into that, you must listen to it. A lot of this perfectly proportioned world is like poetry. And it's something that when I read the notes on this, I kind of really fell in love with it in a way, because when it talks about nature and how it exhibits an equilibrium where all living things coexist in harmony, even from the intricate ecosystems of lush forests to the depths of the ocean and the expansive grasslands, every element of nature plays a unique role in maintaining this delicate balance. And now I think that's pretty poetic. I don't know what you think. By all means, get in touch, send us a tweet, give us a call on 0208-687-7878 and or give us on the social media side of things and at uh, Voice of Islam UK. And there you go. So anyway, peace be upon everyone. Thank you for staying with us. And may the blessings of Allah be upon you all. And as we now talk about the second hour, we're going to be very fortunate to be able to talk to three guests on the show today. Looking forward to speaking to them. So imminently we'll be talking to Ian Campbell. Uh, he's the media manager for the British Beekeepers Association. And, you know, in Islam, we have a very deep love for bees for various reasons, and they're mentioned in the Holy Quran as well. And then we'll be speaking to Paul Hetherington, who's the director of fundraising and communications at Bug Life. Many of us have seen the animations, haven't we, about the bug life and how they all come together and they work. And it's, it's very fascinating. I'm looking forward to that. And then lastly, we'll be talking to Tristan Evans at the end of the show, who is the assistant helpline manager at the Bat Conservation Trust. It'll be interesting to talk to them. But as I was saying, you know, this the interconnected web of relationships between plants, animals and microorganisms they all form a symphony of life where every note is crucial, whether the predator or prey, the pollinator or the plant, all play a role that contribute to the richness and balance of the natural world. And I think that's a, a beautiful kind of introduction to the way that our the Holy Quran says, you know, in chapter 15, verse 20, it says, the earth and the earth we have, so it says, and the earth have we spread out and set therein firm mountains and caused everything to grow therein in proper proportion. And actually, when you reflect on everything and you just look outside in the world, you look at yourself, you look at things in the garden, you just look at nature and you see the way it all comes together and you see these beautiful images from NASA. And then you see how the world is and the galaxies are and then the universe. You think, how is that possible? Everything is working in conjunction with one another. And then you reflect it down on Earth. And this verse is so beautiful in, in chapter 15, verse 20. It says, and the Earth we have spread out and set therein firm mountains and cause everything to grow therein in proper proportion. 
I mean, when you look at the food, when the vegetables, you know, they grow to a certain size. We try and grow them more, but they don't ever extend, do they, to where how much they need to be. Um, the animals around the world, so many different of them, they grow to certain sizes. The insects that we hardly ever see are there. And then we see the whales that can grow from anything from up to 18 meters, you know, I think it is, or if someone can correct me, but they can grow very big. And then you've got the tiny plankton. They all have a purpose and they all work together. And this is the perfection that I would have to talk to you about before we speak to our first guest is that everything has been created to perfection. And, and God Almighty says in the Holy Quran that have you not seen how... Allah has created the seven heavens in perfect harmony. And he says that in chapter 71, verse 16. And any and every aspect of nature that we look towards, we can find it in balance. The orbit of the planets that I was mentioning, the Earth's gravitational pull, the predators and the prey and all the seasonal changes. Obviously, we're seeing some of that merge into something you know you don't have your april showers here in the united kingdom they come either later we don't necessarily get snow down here in the south very often now so but we still have all of those seasons and even if there was a tiny bit of change to the structure of our dna it would change everything and but it doesn't because the balance is there there is no massive disruption it doesn't matter how small or how much this capacity is. Because if it changes, there's catastrophe. And I can give you some examples on that as well. So if we look at gravity, for example, if there was just a tiny little bit stronger, in, in when we look at it from our own three-dimensional world, the if you imagine the curvatures of space-time would be greater, the matter could not be so easy collapse on itself I and mean, imagine if it was the gravity is keeping it there but if we increased it or changed it what would happen you know it's really important stuff that so everything is perfect not only would we have less space on earth but then the sun would deplete its nuclear fuel much more rapidly meaning that the evolution of life itself would be greatly curtailed so there's so many examples and people talk about this golden ratio don't they i mean it's the first time i kind of got into it, but it was about having one instance of a perfection of nature and it's finding the golden ratio in the various elements and this is what happened it found it abundantly throughout the natural world and from all the spirals and the seashells and the branching patterns of trees and the mathematical proportion and veils this really innate harmony and inherent in all things and that's the thing it just makes us realize so much that everything is absolutely perfect and this golden ratio is a mathematical concept that describes a special ratio found in the nature and art and it's defined as an approximately one to six one eighth and is derived from a Fabinicho sequence where each number is the sum of the two preceding ones. So 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, and so on and so on. I'm not a mathematician, but maybe our guest who is joining us can probably explain that a little bit more. But the ratio has revered throughout history for the aesthetics appeal. Aesthetics appeal. 
So anyway, why don't we talk to our first guest who is joining us today, and I'm looking forward to speaking to Ian Campbell. So welcome to the Drive Time Show, Ian, and thank you very much uh, for joining us today. You are the Media Manager for British Beekeepers Association. So I mentioned it earlier, Ian, that we in Islam have a very special love for the bees because it's not only is it mentioned in the Holy Quran in various ways that it says there's a cure for that honey, the pure one, can fix many diseases. So anyway, welcome to the Drive Time Show and thank you for joining Hello, us. Hello, good afternoon. Ah, it's wonderful. Thank you. Look, tell us some more facts about the honeybee behaviour and that communication that makes them such remarkable creatures. Honeybees, as you say, are remarkable creatures. Yeah. They... Their communication is very complex and very sophisticated, especially when you consider that most of it takes place entirely in the dark. Uh, it's completely non-verbal, um, but they work as a very complex social group uh, mm. and they have to work out what they need and how to achieve that. And that's done in all sorts of different ways. Possibly the most well-known is their waggle dance, um, whereby yeah. if all honeybees went out and tried to find their forage um, individually, it wouldn't be the most efficient way of doing it. Yeah. So there are some bees that are possibly slightly cleverer, um, who we call scout bees, uh, and they're the female work, some of the female workers. Mm. And when they find a good source of, of nectar or pollen from plants, they will come back to the hive um, and they're in an area of the hive that often gets called the dance floor. Um, they will perform what's called a waggle dance yeah. uh, where they do this figure of eight kind of movement and it will give very exact uh, distance and direction locations of where that nectar source is and bees that sort of feel this vibration and, and sense this dance in front of it will then know where to go for further forage. I mean, you mentioned about the intelligent bees that go out hunting and finding the, the nectar, and then they come back and do that wonderful dance that you're describing. Are there any other kind of different roles within the honeybee colony? And, and, and this, this, like, we have, like, in businesses, don't we, an organisational structure. Some are more flatter than others. But is mm -hmm. there is this hierarchical kind of structure in, in the honeybee colony? To an extent, yes. Mm. I mean... There's what we call age-related sort of division of labour. Um, so a newly hatched adult bee um, for its first three weeks will be a house bee. So it will do tasks within the hive. And as it grows and as it develops, those tasks become more sophisticated. So it will start off clean, being a cleaner. Yeah. It will then move on to being a nurse bee to start looking after the larvae. Uh, as it grows and its glands develop, it can then produce wax and then will will be involved with the construction of the fabric of the hive. Again, as it grows older, its, its sting glands will develop uh, and it will, can become a guard bee. Mm. And after their first three weeks, I mean, a honeybee will live about six weeks in the summer. After its first three weeks, um, it will become... Uh, a forager, uh, a field bee, and we'll go out and, and sort of uh, look for for the water or nectar or pollen that, that's vital to the hives. Yeah. Can I just get a clarification there? Did you say life of a bee is six weeks? 
In the summertime, six yeah. weeks, a honeybee, yes. I mean, in the winter, they have a neat trick where they can extend their lifespans by about four times, partially because they change their body chemistry, partially because they're flying less and raising less young. So in the winter, they can live up to about six months, but just six weeks in the summer. I didn't even know that. That's that's very much new to me. I, obviously, um, that, that that's really good. I really like. I really like that. There is this thing about this creation of the hexagonal cells, which they make in their honeycomb in their home. There was this study, wasn't it, to, to prove that the way they made that uh, hexagon was the the best, strongest structure that required the less amount of material. Precisely. It is, it is very much about that. They yeah. need it. It takes a lot of energy to produce the wax. They make the wax on on glands on their abdomen, on the underside of their abdomen, and then manipulate it with their mouth parts to to make the comb. There's a slight question on whether they actually make circles, and then sort of physics kind of draws that into a hexagon shape right, because okay. of the properties of the wax. Yeah. But this, this hexagon shape is extremely efficient in terms of space, extremely efficient in, in terms of use of material, and without the combs, the bees can't exist because that's their food storage system, that's their nursery system, that's where they raise their young. So when a swarm first leaves a hive, it takes a store of honey with it, and the very first job they'll do when they when they find a new home is to start building comb because right. without that the the colony has no future. Really interesting uh, that is. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that they mainly work at night time. Um, it's a mix of. I mean, a lot of the work that takes place at night time is the processing of nectar into honey. So there's the bees don't fly at night. Honey bees don't fly at night. But often if you go to a hive, especially in the summertime, uh, you will hear, uh, in, at night time, you will hear activity in the hive. And when they bring back nectar, nectar can have quite a high water content. Yeah. And to be honey, the water content needs to be down below 20%. Uh, so they have to work quite hard and they, they, they use um, thermal flows through the hive that they create by beating their wings to evaporate the additional water out of the hives, and and that's often the activity at night. Oh, okay, interesting. So, could you give me some of the misconceptions that people have about honeybees, and because they're not wasps at all, are they? The biggest misconception that we find is we went is when we go out and take uh, we often take observation hives, a glass walled hive, out to shows and and to meet the public, and the public are often surprised by the fact that what we take are honeybees because honeybees do look quite like a wasp yeah. but they don't have that bright yellow coloring the size and shape of a honeybee is very similar to a wasp yeah. and often what people are expecting honeybees to be are bumblebees what? and whilst there's about 24 species of bumblebee in the uk yeah. they live in small colonies of a few hundred uh, bees um, that produce just about enough food for themselves whereas honeybees will live in a much, much bigger colony of up to 50 or 60,000 bees midsummer. Yeah. Uh, and, and as they say, that when we take these bees to shows, people are a bit confused very often. 
and kind of question us about are those really honeybees because yeah. that's not what we're expecting yeah. so it, they are they are a kind of much more wasp-like sort of size and shape of insect yeah interesting they, they do i know we're talking about honeybees and I just want to, and I, this is from my own understanding, with wasps. You know, there was whole thing with the pylons and the telephone lines and the power lines. Does that affect bees and and honeybees and wasps the same? I'm not aware of a huge amount of science into it, but yeah. uh, people who keep bees are often. It's it suggested that people who keep bees near electricity pylons, electricity mm. substations and things like that, it can have an influence on the temperament of the bees right. and the bees are kind of more agitated when they're in those sorts of environments. But I, I'm not sure of any science on that uh, as opposed to anecdotal stories that we will tend to avoid those kind of locations when keeping bees. Interesting. Okay, right. That, that all sounds good. So just the... Just before you, I let you go, Ian, uh, what are some of the biggest challenges faced by the honeybee population today? And I know I kind of alluded to it just now, but what would happen if these issues were not addressed? I mean, there's a whole magnitude of it. Uh, honeybees aren't especially threatened. There are bum- yeah. there is bumblebee and solitary bee species in the UK that are more at risk. But all pollinators and and honeybees do have challenges. Pesticides, uh, modern farming methods, habitat loss. uh, There's a whole range of things that can just push bees towards a tipping point. Possibly the biggest one we've got currently is um, there's uh, a species known as Asian yellow-legged hornets that have been moving across Europe since they started getting in from, from China in about 2004. And these Asian hornets have have started to come into the UK in numbers last year. And we're really quite concerned that the numbers um, this year will increase and could increase rapidly. And this will be a new non-native species in the UK that is a massive threat. And we're really keen to up the public's awareness about this species and to make them aware that if they see them and they've got very distinctive they're a large insect um, with yellow lower legs and a yellow band on their abdomen, yeah. slightly smaller than a European hornet. Yeah. And if you see them, there's an app you can use called the Asian Hornet Watch app where you can report them and government agencies will go out and try and uh, eliminate them and try and eradicate this threat from the UK. Okay. All right, interesting. Well, we're, thanks for sharing that information with us, Ian. And uh, it was a pleasure speaking to you. And thank you for your insight into the, you know, the Beekeepers Association and and everything else related to it. And I, I really hope that um, we get you back on the show. We we've got some people who are associated with the uh, Voice of Islam Radio who are beekeepers themselves. So, uh, thank you. Yeah, it is. Thanks, Ian. Bye for now. Take care. You're welcome. So that was um, Ian Campbell, the media manager for British Beekeepers Association. And, yeah, looking forward to speaking to him again in the future. So just wanted to... I mean, a lot of the stuff was really interesting about the honeybees. um, But I wanted to... You know, I mentioned something about the Holy Grand where it mentions about kind of the bees and, and et cetera, 
uh, like that. But I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about this incredible tiny creature, the honeybee, that is mentioned by God Almighty in the Holy Quran. And it's mentioned in two verses uh, it's chapter 16 and verse 69 and 70 and it says this thing about this um, incredible tiny creature it says and thy lord has inspired the bee saying make thou houses in the hills and in the trees and in the trellises which they build then eat of every kind of fruit and follow the ways of thy lord that have been made easy for thee there comes forth from their bellies a drink of varying hues. Therein is a cure for men. Surely in that is a sign for a people who reflect. And that's why I was saying earlier in the show that we have a, a special love for bees because they're mentioned specifically in the Holy Quran. And this end bit of the, the verse where it says therein is a cure for men. Surely in that is a sign for people who reflect. So that's the thing I wanted to just uh, chat to you about. So by all means, you know, give us a call on 0208-687-7878. And um, if you've got any questions, uh, we'll be speaking to Paul Heatherington uh, shortly. And we'll talk to him about... Um, the kind of fundraising and the communications uh, related to uh, bug life. So I'll be looking, speaking to him about that. But I wanted to talk about also, just before we speak to Paul, it's about the creatures of the deep. And I think that's uh, something that's going to be really good and really interesting. So here we go. So look, the deep ocean. This is really interesting here, where even... When you talk about the brightest rays of the sunlight can't even reach, these are like 100 meters down, I think, really, really, really low down in the deep in the deep sea, where there's literally no light from the sun. But there are schools of hundreds of tiny fish that light up at once, and they're able to even signal to one another to swim in formation. That's that's incredible. And then, then jellyfish can then can be seen emitting intermittent flashes and they're communicating and warning to their kin about the looming presence of some formidable predator. And near the ocean floor, angel fish employ the cunning strategy, dangling a biomonscent lure before its jaws. And, uh, you know, you've seen those little pictures of those uh, fish. And then it entices the unsuspecting prey to draw nearer, looking at that light. And then you see it showcasing in diverse and intricate strategies for survival. And in this mysterious dark realm in the Dupli Sea. I mean, that's another interesting thing. And this bioluminance is actually a reaction between three molecules um, and the protein and enzymes and oxygen and the marine biologists estimate that it's around 90% of the creatures live in greater than 100 meters yeah that's what I'm saying it's really deep 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 down um, and that's where they can still emit light so just before I speak with Paul I wanted to kind of read this uh, quote from the Holy Quran about you know it's fascinating is that it's an absolute in absolute darkness that creatures are still able to create their own light with any external input and God Almighty says in the Holy Quran and he says this in chapter 2 verse 165 that verily 
in the creation of the heavens and the earth and in the alternation of the night and day and in the ships which sail in the sea with which the which profits men and in the water which Allah sends down from the sky and quickens there with the earth after its death and scatters therein all kinds of beasts and in the change of the winds and the clouds pressed into service between the heavens and the earth are indeed signs for people who understand. So, just before I talk about snowflakes, which is quite interesting, let's talk to Paul. Paul Haddington. He's the Director of Fundraising and Communications at Bug Life. Welcome, Paul, to the Drive Time Show, and thank you very much for joining me today. Good evening, Hanif. Lovely to be with you. Ah, oh, you're a star. Thank you. Look, a, a Bug's Life is the only organisation in Europe that's devoted to the conservation of all invertebrates working to save the rarest of the little animal. But bugs, they often get a really bad reputation. I mean, I when I see a bug, I, um, I you know, when I was a kid, I should run away as much as I could. So, look, can you share some fascinating and quirky kind of little uh, tidbits about the invertebrates and, you know, how they might actually change our listeners' views and how remarkable these creatures are? Yeah, so actually I'm going to start with a very little creature called the midge. And midge, most people okay. hate midges, don't they? Particularly if they go up to places like Scotland and they get bitten all over yeah. by midges. Right. Um, so everyone thinks, what's the purpose of the midge? Well, if it wasn't for midges, there'd be no chocolate because the cocoa plant is pollinated solely by midges. So there you are. There's a purpose that's really dear to our hearts for why we need midges. That's interesting. Actually, didn't even know that. But so, th- so therefore, midges are found all over the world. Obviously, then. Oh yes, yeah. Well, I, I don't think there's any found in Antarctica. Of course, they found all the other continents. Yeah, it's it's like in Africa, we got all the cocoa plants and um, and all the places like that, and here as well. Uh, that's interesting. You got any more? Yeah, I mean, again, the the wasp is another. I'm, I'm picking here some of the very um, you know, thought of as unpleasant. Uh, yes. yeah, yeah. creatures because I mean we could talk about bees and how wonderful they are and pollination to the cows come home if you like but yeah. you know wasps again they get a very bad press all people do is get frightened about them and, and think they're going to get stung but they actually are very very important um, they carry out small amounts of pollination but more importantly they are nature's pest controllers and without wasps being around most of the things we grow to eat or we grow to admire in our gardens yeah. will be eaten up by caterpillars and things. And it's the wasps that keep the balance, mm. the balance of nature that prevents all of these plants being destroyed. So yeah. again, they play a very important role for us. And of course, they're great innovators. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's wasps that make paper. And, and it's from learning from things like that that we learn to do things. And similarly, they found the sting of a wasp from Southern America is a potential cure for certain types of cancer. Oh, interesting. Uh, and although, you know, where I said earlier in the show that um, about the bees, you know, there's signs and there's a cure for man in bees. So, so you're saying also potentially there is also that for wasps as well. Um before you give me another one, I, you know, are there are there these little creatures that you talk about? You know, when everything falls off in autumn, it all goes, they all land on the ground, and suddenly, all right, we pick loads of the leaves up. But actually, are there things that get rid of it as well? Are these insects around that do that? 
all the foliage. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, all of the these things that fall to the ground yeah. get broken down by certainly little invertebrates. Some of them are insects. Yeah. Um, in the same way that the poo gets broken down by predominantly by insects, right, yeah. um, and 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 you know, dead animal bodies. I mean, the world would be a horrible place if we didn't yeah. have all these things breaking breaking the stuff the stuff down and turning it into nutrients in our soil. Uh, things like you know, earthworms are great for breaking down you know, leaf, leaf litter, and so mm. they pull it down into the soil, they break it down and turn it into nutrients, and, and it's part of that whole recycling business. Um, and, and then things like dung beetles. Dung beetles, for instance, are estimated to be worth over a quarter of a billion pounds per annum to UK farmers for the service they provide in fertilising the soil. That's that's a that's a fantastic statistic. I think we'll probably get that quoted out. Actually, <laughs> that's really interesting. I mean, look, bugs and insects—they do obviously the way you've described it. Now they contribute to the ecosystem, uh, but are there any kind of potential consequences of their decline? And what I mean by decline, but some are going and some are becoming even stronger and more, right? Yeah, but I mean, in general terms, yeah. we are seeing a massive decline in bugs. We run a survey uh, called Bugs Matter, which measures the abundance of flying insects. And it does it by actually looking at squashed insects on car number plates. It's a citizen science survey. <laughs> and that that has shown that we are looking at a 64% fall. So that's almost two-thirds a drop in the abundance since 2004. So in the last 20 years we've lost that much abundance. So things are moving towards the critical stage. Mm. And if you just took away pollinators, you, you would have a huge problem. If you want to go in the countryside, eight out of 10 of our wildflowers are dependent upon pollination yeah. for reproduction. So that would become a very boring, dull area. And most of what we eat, they reckon one in three mouthfuls that we eat mm. is pollinator dependent. And, you know, you think, oh, yeah, well, fruits and tomatoes and courgettes and things. Um, but so are things like carrots and parsnips, yeah. because without pollinators, they wouldn't be able to set seed and we wouldn't be able to grow any of the following mm. year. So we'd be left with things like grains, um, some of the onion family that can, you know, move on by bulb division, uh, potatoes. But you can see we're getting a very sort of grey palette that we're going to be having rather than the rich variety of food that we have today. And that's just taking away pollinators. Before we look at taking down all the things that are breaking stuff down, mm. creating, you know, fertilising the soil... Look at bird species in in the UK. Yeah. We would probably be left with just two bird species if we lost pollinators, just two. We'd have a, a, a raptor that would be able to eat things like dead rabbits from roadkill, and we would end up with uh, the, the the one and only grass seed eating okay. bird. So, I mean, what what confuses me, and you can set me straight here, is that we have a massive green belt. No one's ever going to build on green belt. Um, and we look at the country, United Kingdom, look at Scotland, it's the Highlands and it's Snowdonia. All these places are full of green. Is that a different type of green? Do we need just the wilding to be happening everywhere? Well, let's start with the green belt, for instance, because that's yeah. something that most of your listeners have probably got some sort of access to. And let's go and actually wander out in there. And yeah. what you'll actually see is it's very green, but it's often just fields of wheat. Now, if you go into you know certain shops, you can buy packets of what they call cornfield annuals, and they're things like red poppies and um, blue cornflowers yeah. and, and so forth. Uh, and 
they're called that because you used to see them growing in these wheat fields, but today you just see these monoculture green fields because we've plastered everywhere with herbicides and we've got rid of all the wildflowers. Yeah. So we have a green belt, but it is just that it's green. There's very little actual food in it for our bugs. So that's causing a, a lot of issues. And then, I mean, I live up in the in the high Pennines mm. uh, and a lot of sheep farming goes on here. But even here, the, the landscape, because it, it gets overgrazed yeah. and because also because they're growing it for sheep farming, they put lots and lots of manure on the ground, mm. which makes the grass grow very vigorously. But vigorous grass suppresses the flowers. So even in, the, in our sort of wild, remote areas, we have altered things to the extent that a lot of the food sources are no longer there. So we are seeing declines all over the place. We actually have a situation now where there is often more biodiversity in terms of species variation within urban environment than there is in the rural environment. Because in the urban environment, people have got gardens and people with gardens grow all kinds of different yep. plants. Yep. And that means we end up with you know, a greater variety of species in the urban environment, which is yep. really, really worrying. So when you talk to farmers who are producing kind of food for us, um, do you think there's responsibility for farmers to have a part of their fields to be rewilded? But then if they did that, would that affect what they're growing? So it's very important that there is you know, national support for this kind of activity to yeah. happen. Um, because one of the great ideas that the government's had in the past, which was actually a very poor idea, was we'll pay you to grow wildflower strips around the edge of your field, yeah. but you're covering your field in pesticides. So I've made this thing right. that looks like a great buffet yeah, yeah, yeah. for all okay. the bugs to come to, yeah. and I've covered it in pesticides so all the bugs die. Yeah. So it needs to be properly thought through. Yeah. Um, but if it's done properly, it can be done, and it actually is advantageous for a lot of farming mm -hmm. to have the bugs around. Things like you know pollinators, as I've, I've mentioned, they're brilliant yeah. for fruit and a lot of vegetables. But uh, there's also things like beetles. They're really, really important for controlling things like slugs. Mm -hmm. So if you put the right habitats in and the right kind of... You know, areas for things to live you can actually have natural pest control going on in your area and uh, you can end up with really good crops for instance when they stop the use of neonicotinoid pesticides on sugar beet the general yield per acre actually went up of sugar beet not down now the problem is some farmers were really badly hit because they got an infestation that wiped their crop out but the others got much much bigger crops mm. so it can be done and it can actually be to their advantage yeah okay so the question before i let you go i mean we, we had a situation many councils stopped using glyphosate which was that um very toxic to to get rid of all of the plants etc but the question i had for you is that this our activities as human beings, we have a massive impact on bugs and insects and its population, which obviously you've also explained as well. But, you know, like what kind of steps can we take to mitigate these threats and promote insect conservation? So we as individuals, there's a lot of very simple, straightforward things we can do, some of which won't even cost us any money. First and foremost, I would say in your garden area, Stop using chemicals. There is no need to use pesticides and herbicides. You'll lose the odd bit of plant here and there, but you'll soon get a symbiotic relationship where the predators keep the pests under control and you'll still have a flourishing garden and you'll have that buzz of life back in there. So that's something that will cost you nothing. Yeah. Another thing you can do that will cost you nothing and actually might save you money is 
when you put lights on at night time, draw the curtains or drop the blinds first because artificial light at night has a really negative impact on an awful lot of insects. The night flying ones like moths, you'll often see them streaming and bash against windows yeah, and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the day flying ones, they don't realize it's nighttime, so they are up and they overwork themselves. So it's another no-cost thing you can do. Actually, will save you money because it will reduce the heat loss. Yeah. Plant a little patch of something that's good for pollinators to feed on. Uh, if you can plant some wildflowers, brilliant. But, for instance, if you live in a flat and you, all you can do is perhaps have a window box or you know, a tub on a balcony, I would recommend growing herbs right, and let okay. them flower. Herbs yeah. in flower are brilliant for pollinators. You've made, if you like, a motorway service station where they can pop in and fuel up as they go on to another good place. Yeah. But you've also got something you can pick and put in your cooking yeah. and enjoy. Okay, yeah, I agree with you. We do that at home as well. So, um, and we use many of that in our Indian cooking as well to give a lovely aroma and obviously cook as well. Okay, well, that's brilliant, Paul. I really appreciate well, your wonderful. time today. And definitely, we'll, you know, we'll be speaking again together and maybe we'll do a whole um, two hours um, on this subject and how we can make a difference, especially with the rewilding, definitely. So, okay, all right, thanks, Paul. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Look forward to it. You're welcome. Okay. Good evening. Good evening to you as well. That was Paul um, Heddington. He's the director and fundraising and communications at the Bug Live. So I thought that was really interesting. And look, I'm now looking forward to speaking to Tristan Evans uh, shortly. But I did mention to you about snowflakes, didn't I? I said, what about snowflakes? And when we're talking about how everything is perfect, it's poetically created by God Almighty. Snowflakes potentially is one of those as well. So look, as the winter season blankets and the landscapes in the pristine layer of snow, one of nature's most captivating spectacle emerges, and that is the snowflake. It's delicate and intricate. Each snowflake serves as a remarkable example of the intricate and stunning design that can arise from nature's most basic element. And you've seen it. When it goes, it starts snowing. Don't you just look out the window and sometimes you step outside as well and you just see those tiny little flakes fall and sometimes they form and they stay when the ground is cold enough. But actually you can see them and they are very intricate as well. And they're kind of formed from a process of crystallization that occurs obviously high up in the Earth's atmosphere. And then those kind of structures emerge from the transformation of the water vapor into they're like ice crystals. And then the temperature and the humidity levels in the atmosphere play this very important pivotal role in determining the ultimate form that each of these snowflakes will take. And at the heart of every snowflake's intricate structure lies this kind of unique arrangement of water molecules. And we will get snow at some point down here in London. If you're lucky in Scotland, you get to see all of that. So anyway, look, as the water freezes and the molecules from the hexagon lattice structure, then allowing the snowflakes to grow outward in a symmetrical pattern and the intricate branching patterns emerge from the specific bonding angles between water molecules, creating an elaborate and unique design that have fascinated scientists and artists alike for centuries. Again, poetic. The way a 
has created or God Almighty has created all these things in perfect harmony is absolutely fantastic. So let's um, talk to Tristan very shortly. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a question that gets asked a lot and that it's the universe and everything around it that it's so remarkable that it of its existence and i will go into that just let, let's just have a conversation with tristan evans before that and let's have a chat with him so i want to talk to tristan evans he's the assistant helpline manager at the bat conversation trust and i've seen bats uh, i've seen them in ghana um and you can tell they're bats because obviously they don't fly very similar to birds, do they, Tristan? They look very different in the air. Yeah, they, yeah, they do look uh, quite quite different. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for uh, you know, inviting me on. Oh, you're welcome. Um, but yeah, they and obviously they they tend to fly around at night. Because, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so look, your your bat conservation trust it is actually leading the non-governmental organization in the united kingdom and it's solely devoted to the conservation of bats and the landscape in which they rely on because that's quite important as well so why is it i mean this is something completely different because they always depicted aren't they to represent uh, like a scary scene in a, in a horror movie. Why is it that they're so fascinated in in this way? And can you just give us some facts about the bats as well? I think yeah. I mean, there is a, a cliche with the, you know bats being sort of you know part of kind of horror films, yeah, like Dracula and things like yeah. that. But it's um, and I think it's kind of important to remember that actually all bats in the UK, I think people worry that, you know, they're going to uh, get, you know, sort of tangled in their hair or come and sort of, you know, drink their blood and things like that. But in the UK, all all bats, uh, they only eat insects. And um, they are also like, incredibly small. A lot of the bats you'll see in other countries are a lot bigger. But all the ones in the UK are really, really small and will only, only eat insects. And um, they'll um, you, you just, you know, sort of might see them around your garden kind of, you know, in, in the evening, sort of around dusk or something. Mm. Um, and yeah, one uh, a single bat could eat up to potentially three thousand insects in, a, in an evening, and they're quite close to, some, in some ways, a lot closer to kind of people than people imagine. Mm. Um, another kind of really interesting thing about bats is that one bat will only ever have kind of one baby at a time, um, you know, and yeah. that's only once a year, if that. Occasionally, they might have you know twins, but. Mm. Um, a lot of these things that people kind of uh, expect from from them, from seeing them, and you know, from just getting them from horror films and things like that. A lot of it is just you know, kind of myths and, and and just doesn't really. It's just not really how it works in in, yeah. in real life. Yeah, I mean, this. Are there any other kind of obvious misconceptions that we have about bats? Because they do they always live in caves? That's the kind of. <laughs> No, so that's, that's another one. I mean, uh, part of what uh, part of my job on the on the National Bat Helpline is um, we advise people who have bats, you know, roosting in their, you know, under their in their roof or yeah. in their loft or yeah. kind of under tiles and things. They'll, you know, they're used to trees. Um, cases an obvious one, but as part of kind of you know just how our kind of country and land the world has developed, um, and we've you know the, a lot of the natural sort of habitats that bats would have you know originally kind of been roosting in they've had to adapt um 
and you know using kind of you know a little gap under somebody's you know lifted tile on their roof is a is a is oh, an example of how they've kind of adapted to kind of you know come come and have it with us and you know sort of, sort of, Oh, can we try and kind of find a way to kind of have a happy medium where we kind of yeah. live together alongside them? And yeah, interesting. It, it really is. I mean, how how do they communicate? I mean, is there is there a, a dance that they do? Is there there the sound that they make? So they a lot of it is through kind of um, just the sounds. Um, obviously, they use their location as, as kind of being able to kind of find and locate food, but they also yeah. use um, you know, sound as a, a means to communicate. Um, uh, you know, for, for example, um, it's been found in a research paper recently that uh, kind of the, the, the mum bats will actually kind of babble to the, to the baby bats, mm-hmm. kind of like in a, in a kind of a, a baby talk in a similar way that, again, like I said, it's kind of like similar to people in a lot of ways, but, you know, you might kind of babble, uh, uh, you know, at like your own baby. Okay. So yeah, they can use use sounds in all kinds of ways, really. But, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So you know, you mentioned that they eat insects, loads and loads of insects. Do they eat anything else? Do they eat like rats and things like that, or not? So in the UK, um, we have we have eighteen species of bat in the UK, and all of those will only eat insects. Um, there's over, I think, one thousand. Uh, 400 um, species kind of across the world, and that will range massively. So you know, some will eat fish, some will eat all, all kinds of things, some will oh, eat, okay. you know, fruit. Um, but in the UK, it is, it is just it is just insects. Right. Okay. So besides eating insects, is there another? How else do they kind of help in the ecosystem? Well, as with kind of a lot of things in, mm. in ecosystems, everything's in quite a fine sort of you know balance. Um, and they are kind of very important indicators of the kind of how well you know. If you see bats in, in your local area, you know mm. you've got a really good sort of level of biodiversity there, and you've got a really healthy environment. And they're very very good indicators of that. Right. Um, okay. And yeah, so there's, there's, like I said, as with anything, everything's in kind of a, a fine balance. Um, and you know, if you've got bats that if their numbers were to decline, everything kind of falls out a little bit of of that balance and that has a knock-on effect to kind of everyone right okay i mean if you saw a flying bat are you are you supposed to run away are you scared are you like because of this thing you get in horror movies you know you run don't you but are you meant to be fearful are they just like any other bird that's flying around i mean they're not really going to want to have a lot to do with with people um most you know, most people will kind of you know the only kind of contact they'll ever have with bats is that you know they might sort of see see them flying around at dusk, right. um, and they're yeah. not you know they they sometimes they kind of the way they fly they sort of swoop around but they're not really going to want to come into contact with, with any humans. They're kind of off doing their own thing. You know if you if you're lucky enough to get to get to see that it is quite um, yeah. it's quite a nice thing to be able to sit out and watch. Right. But yeah, um, yeah there's really no need to kind of. Good. So, so saying that, then we should actually. I'm not saying that that's the reason why we should, but actually, you know, we we should be prioritising the conservation of bats, shouldn't we? Uh, especially because it's a. You mentioned that it's an indicator of the biodiversity um, within a certain area, but we shouldn't be neglecting their protection, should we? No, I, I think you know, well, definitely uh, for, for, for all animals, but yeah, obviously with, with, with bats in particular, um, I think it's. Because they have this kind of a lot of unfortunate kind of misconceptions in, in the general public, and people, not in the people 
often know a lot about and they have you know there's myths and things that people you know might misunderstand um it's even more important that we kind of try and you know promote you know that actually these are really amazing creatures mm. and they do a lot to help us um and yeah definitely we should we should you know prioritize and yeah. keep them protected okay excellent well really appreciate that. that that's really really kind of you, Tristan, to be able to talk to us about bats and and our responsibility and and you know just give our listeners some really great insight. I appreciate that, and I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. That's great. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, you're most welcome. Okay, bye for now. Bye. So that was uh, Tristan Evans. He's the assistant help manager at the Bat Conservation Trust. Maybe I should have asked him. Could we visit? we go and have a look at the trust and see if there's any place where you can look at bats and, en- and enjoy their splendour. So anyway, just before we spoke to Tristan, I was going to talk to you about soul creator Al-Khaliq. This is um, something that's really important about Al-Khaliq, Al-Bari, Al-Masavir. Uh, this is th- this presence of a higher being that always gets put into question. But you know, when I mentioned about the universe, didn't I, earlier about the galaxies and understand how remarkable it is. And it can't just have happened by mere chance. We all know that, and many scientists are are understanding that. It cannot be done on probability. I mean, it says in the Holy Quran that in, in many verses it mentions how Allah, the Almighty, is the sole creator, Al-Khaliq. So... Um, I wanted to say something about the, what the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is holding as husband of Masoor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, explained that in Arabic, khalq, it actually means to create something from nothing or using no prior design. And that means that there was nothing but Allah before he created something because if there was something, then the design would have existed. This means that Allah originated creation as well. And as we've described today, speaking to many of our guests, you can see 100%, can't you? It's it's perfection. Our world is, is perfection. So I wanted to come to the ends of the show by um, saying something what the second caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community said, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed. And he writes that when a person views the magnificent work of art, they recognise that it has been created by a skilled artist. And when a person then reads a fine piece of literature, they are also able to discern that it's been produced by a distinguished writer. Then he says, then, how can the people imagine that such a beautifully arranged world came into existence arbitrarily and by itself? Look, no artist, sculpture, or engineer comes close to any bit close to the beauty and detail that we observe, don't we, in various elements throughout the universe. And they're all treat and all and they are all a testament that Allah the Almighty is the maker. And it says that in Al-Bari and and also he's the fashioner as well. So look, in conclusion, just before we end, in chapter 67, verse 4 to 5, who has created seven heavens in harmony, incongruity canst thou see in the creation of the gracious God? Then look again, seest thou any flaws? I look again. And yet again, 
thy sight will only return unto thee confused and fatigued. And that was chapter 67, verse 4 and 5. So there you go. So, look, whether it be the spiritual pattern of the galaxies and the rhythmic pulsation of the stars or the symmetry of the flower petals, each element of nature embodies a remarkable sense of order and beauty. From the tiniest atom to the grandest celestial body, every component of the universe plays a vital role in maintaining the delicate equilibrium that sustains life. And as we contemplate the boundless wonders of the world around us, we are reminded of the profound interconnectedness and the unity that defines our existence inspiring us all to marvel at the perfection inherent in the creation of nature. So, fantastic. I just want to say a massive thank you to our producers, Labia Mubashir, who did the Cancer Culture, and Seyda Tahideh, who spoke about the second topic, about nature. And I, for one, found our conversations that I had with our guests to be fantastic I learned loads and I hope you did and obviously thank you very much for taking part in our poll uh, that was in the first hour about the council culture uh, where the biggest one was about holding people accountable so thanks for the technical team and here's the news